as we venture into the murky waters of everything you've been told never to bring up at holiday dinner. You'll need a guy, someone you can trust, a battle-tested, common-sense leader who knows that an extra pair of dry socks just might save your life. That wise old sage has arrived, and he is shouting the Schmidt Show battle cry. Schmidt heads unite! Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Depending on where it is you are listening, or when it is you are listening, we, uh, our good friend Charlie in Australia, I think it's like two in the morning or three in the morning for him, so if he's listening, Charlie, good morning, good evening, good night, whatever it is for you. Uh, I, I don't what, what do you call two in the morning, right? Because it's not really morning, but it's not really night either, because it's technically morning, so anyway. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever it is for you. Thanks for joining me. I am Brad Schmidt. I am your host. This is The Schmidt Show. Um, a couple of, just a quick thing. I have been working, as I've mentioned, with a with a, um, a graphic artist or a caricature artist, I guess you could say, to get some, some artwork done and get a Schmidt head mascot created. And I have been working with Cartoon Kate, I think is her website. Let me just bring this. I'll have a, I'll have a link to it in the show notes, um, just to make sure that, um, is it, or Cartoon Katie, I think it's Cartoon Katie. Let me, I mean, hang on, get this up here real quick. Cartoon I think it's Cartoon uh, yeah, cartoonkatie.com. Katie Green is her name. She did. She created the Schmidt Show mascot for me. So she's got the artwork done. I've seen the preview of it. She said she's got to do a little bit of cleanup on it and uh, get it ready for uh, having it digitized and turned into T-shirts and hats and, and all that sort of thing and coffee mugs or whatever we want to do with it. Uh, so, yeah, so congratulations to Cartoon Katie. She's done a fantastic job. Um, and if you want to check it out, like I said, I'll have a link to her, uh, website in the show notes. If you're looking for any caricature work, um, give her, and and this isn't a paid spot. She's not, she's not advertising with me. She's not giving me free, you know, free artwork or anything like that. I'm just genuinely really impressed with the work that she did. Um, so if you're looking for something like that and what a great Christmas gift, right? It's that time of year. A Christmas gift. Send a, a a portrait of you and your special someone, your your you know girlfriend, boyfriend, your husband, your wife, whatever. Maybe you're maybe you've got a a, a loved beloved family pet that you'd like to immortalize. Um, she can create a caricature of it and a, some really cool artwork um, that you could have you know framed or or printed or whatever. So go. Go check her out. I, I'm all about small business and, and helping people out and helping people uh, get to a, a, the next level, if you will, with their skill, with their art, with their with their content or, or whatever it is. So, again, th- not a paid spot. She's not giving me free artwork or anything like that. I paid her for the artwork that she did. Um, I just was really impressed with it, and uh, when I believe in something – um, I like to uh, to promote it a little bit. So go check her out, cartoonkatie.com. Anyway, this is The Schmidt Show. I'm your host, Brad Schmidt. Thanks for joining me this afternoon um, or this morning or whatever it is, wherever you're at. A uh, couple of things to talk about today. We're going we're gonna to have a, a, a fun and exciting show. We're going to talk a little bit about government policy and how it affects the family. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Paris and some of the riots that have been going on over there for the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the tariff stuff if we get time. Uh, Donald Trump has said, you know, 90 days for before any more new tariffs imposed. The, ch- the trade deficit with China is actually increasing, so we'll get to that uh, if we get time. We'll talk a little bit about what some of the founding fathers or founding principles were of the United States of America. Because the question that, that seems to be on my mind as I, as I see the meltdown in Paris, as I see the, the, uh, the expressions of frustration among so many, not only in Europe with the mass migration, uh, but the frustrations... Uh, it, in what's happening just around the world, there's part of me that wonders, do we need a new, new world? Do we need a new American revolution? Even if it's not necessarily 
America, even if it's not necessarily, you know, a a refoundation or a re revolution um, to create the United States of America, but do we need another nation such as the United States, such as what went on with the United States? Do we do we need that? Is is that where we are at in this world? Is it time to reach into history and drag some of the founding principles into modernity and relaunch the revolution, relaunch what became the United States of America? Because as, as much as I love this country, as great as the United States is and is as, as big of a patriot as I am, I fear that we are racing towards what's happening in Europe. If you want to join the show, if you want to call in and be a part of the show, 866-766-1776 is the phone number, 866-766-1776. And you can call in, share your thoughts from anywhere in the world. It, it's, a, it's in the, in the U.S., so it's a, the number one. Got to, you know, the country code is 1-866-766-1776. If you're calling from outside the United States, I've never called the U.S. from outside the United States, so sorry, can't help you. But the number for the United States is 1-866-766-1776. You can join us on the free note chat room. Just look for Schmidt, Schmidt Heads. Uh, on the Freenode chat room. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, all kinds of different places. If you want to uh, telegram, we've got our own little telegram group. That's a fun place to uh, to join us as well uh, and share your thoughts on on any of this. I want to start with, though, um, Charlie in in um, Australia sent me a, through, to the chat room, sent a, 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 a JPEG, a, a picture of a page from a memo to, to a guy named Ber, Bernard Berelson, who was the president of the Population Council. And this was found in the Activities Relevant to the Study of Population Policy for the U.S., dated March 11, 1969, written by Frederick S. Jaffe, the vice president of Planned Parenthood World Population Division. It says, uh, table one, it says examples of proposed measures to reduce U.S. fertility by universally or se- select or universality or se- selectivity of impact. And then it's got a couple of different columns, universal impact, selective impact, depending on socioeconomic status, and then measures predicated on existing motivation to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And there's a whole list of different things here. Some disturbing sorts of situations or, or ideas, if you ask me. One of them being compulsory education of children, which doesn't sound like all that bad of an idea, but they're not talking about compulsory math, science, and, and, and history. That's not the kind of compulsory education they're talking about. They're talking about compulsory education of children in, in the issues of sexuality and and pregnancy and and all of those sorts of you know childbearing family planning kinds of things, um, which again on the surface doesn't sound like a bad idea until you understand what they are advocating for, because what they're advocating for is family limitation. They've even suggested as far back as 1969 fertility control agents in the water supply, s- straight up poisoning the water supply to prevent children from being born, encouraging women to work. Now, again, on the surface, great idea. My wife works, loves her job, and I'm happy that she does enjoy her job, and I'm happy that she has a job. It helps us meet our financial obligations and helps us be able to afford, you know, going on vacations and the things that we do in our, in our lives. So, you know, more power to her. It, it, it's not necessarily um, a problem if it's the choice of the woman. But so many of these encouragements, as listed in this memo, were not listed as 
encouragements and encouraging women to choose, but encouraging women to work because there's no other options. In fact, later on in the memo, it talks about requiring women to work, but then also at the same time providing few child care facilities for the purpose of bringing about chronic depression. They wanted to limit or eliminate public financed medical care. Scholarships, housing, loans, and subsidies to families with more than a certain number of children. They want to modify tax policies. And this is, again, this goes back as far as 1969. Now, some of these policies have changed over the years. I won't deny that. But this, this gives you an insight into the thinking and how long the Planned Parenthood folks and the radical leftists have been thinking about this kind of thing. One of the things they wanted to do was modify tax policies. So as to restructure family. They wanted to alter the idea of the, or the image of the ideal family size, the memo says. They want a substantial marriage tax. If you get married, we're going to punish you financially. If you have children, we're going to give you, we're going to, we're going to levy a child tax. We're going to punish you financially for having children. They're going to tax married children more than single, or married people more than single people, which is kind of the opposite of where we're at now. They want to remove the parents' tax exemption, add additional taxes to parents with more than one or two children in school, eliminate, reduce paid maternity leave. Now, again, we've seen that go the opposite direction. And, and quite honestly, as far as I'm concerned, as it relates to business, I don't think that, that any, any business should be required to provide any sort of maternity leave or vacation time or anything at all. That should be up to the employer. If the employer wants to offer those benefits, then great. If they don't want to offer those benefits, then they're limiting their access to the, to the worker pool because women who may want to one day have children wouldn't work for them. So this, this is, there's, there's more to this discussion than just the Planned Parenthood and, and the abortion and, and all of that kind of stuff. They wanted to offer pensions for women of 45 with less than a certain number of children. I'm not really sure what that would do or how that would deter women from economically for having children other than it would encourage them to leave the workforce early and receive some sort of pension. Uh, eliminate welfare payments after the first two children. Now, again, we're, we're kind of in the opposite direction there. And this is part of one of those things. This is one of those things. This is where I talk about... Uh, several times on my terrestrial show, uh, my terrestrial radio show, which you can find at KNOXradio.com Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 uh, Central Time um, in the U.S. So one of the things that I've talked about several times on on the... Uh, on, the uh, on my terrestrial show is that this... this <sighs> Oh, I lost my train of thought here. I'm reading something on the reading something on this particular memo here. I apologize. I completely lost my train of thought. Reducing, eliminating ch- family allowances. I'm trying to. Oh, um, employers. I think that's what I was talking about. The the um, as it relates to business owners being able to make the decisions on their own and limiting their their workforce. Um, yeah, I, it, I I lost my train of thought. I got into I mentioned the terrestrial show and completely lost my train of thought because I was reading, talking, and and trying to set up a point all at the same time. So this is what happens when you're ADD is you just completely lose your train of thought. So I will have to come back to that as we as we I don't know what I was going to talk about, but anyway, a um, couple more of the we'll just move on. A couple more of the the particular. Um, Oh, eliminating welfare payments to after two two children. 
um, we're we're kind of in the opposite of that now. We are we are, and this is this is one of the other directions that I want to go to, is how the how the 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 family the nuclear family, is being destroyed by the government because we've we've begun to allow for we've begun to encourage um families to or I should say fathers specifically to abandon their families because they don't need to be fathers anymore the government will take their place this is especially tragic in the black community and I've got so I don't get a link to these articles in the show notes but um the uh, one of the the articles by Walter Williams talking about the destruction of the black family and how back in the the 60s the the percentage of black children born out of wedlock was only like 11% whereas now today it's as high as 70 to 75% depending on the the um depending on the the uh municipality or or locale where they where they where the families are um, a couple of other concerning issues in this particular discussion of population control. Compulsory abortion of out-of-wedlock pregnancies. Now, I've, I've suggested several times on my, on my terrestrial show that the, the black family has been the intended target for destruction by Planned Parenthood for decades the 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 planned parenthood movement the planned parenthood ideology is racist at its core its founder margaret sanger was a horrifying eugenicist and and racist and she actually described that that she described black people as weeds who needed to be exterminated that was that was the founder of planned parenthood that believe that. And so when you start looking at a, 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 a family structure or a, a group of people, a demographic in the, in the, um, in this country that has a 75% out of wedlock birth rate. And then you've got an organization calling for the compulsory abortion of out of wedlock pregnancies, I think that's a pretty significant indicator that they want to destroy the black family intentionally. It's it's no longer uh, it's no longer a myth. It's no longer a, a a conspiracy theory. They've they've talked about it. They also talk about compulsory sterilization of anyone who will have two children, except for a very few who would be allowed three. I would assume that would be related to socioeconomic status. If you're rich, you get to keep your kids. If you're poor, we're going to just take them and either kill them or, or sterilize you. So you can't have any more, um, confined childbearing to only a limited number of adults. Now this is an interesting statement because that statement is, comes back to Margaret Sanger's eugenics roots. This was the idea that if you were not, um, acceptable if you were not a, you know, if you had some sort of defects, whether it was uh, a mental disability, mental disability or some or some other issue where you were not the quote unquote superior race, you weren't allowed to have children. You had to have a, a special permit for, for being able or being allowed to bear children. One of the other things that they, the, uh, that this, memo mentions is abortion and sterilization on demand, right? I mean, how long have we been talking about this just recently? You know, the, the, since the seventies, right? The, the issue of abortion on demand, just be able to allow for, and then portray it as if it is something positive, portray it as if it is something um, wonderful and, and positive for society. And Margaret Sanger said that the uh, the again Margaret Sanger being the founding mother of Planned Parenthood said at one point that the the most compassionate thing um, a family can do is murder their children essentially 
I don't remember the exact quote, but it's basically along those lines. So this is this is just to I, I say I bring this up because it lays the foundation uh, for something else that I wanted to talk about, and that being that the that governmental policies are, and I've got a, a a link to a couple articles I'll put in the show notes too that government policies are and have been intentionally destroying. And I shouldn't say intentionally because I don't know that. I, I don't know the legislators that passed it. I think many of the legislators passed some of these laws with the intention of doing good for society. So I, I don't want to say intentionally. I, I need to maybe clarify that. But a lot of these legislators have passed these laws and the end result, regardless of intention, is that it's destroying families in general. And and the destruction of family is the destruction of the fabric of society. There, if, if there is no family unit, no close family unit, society will eventually falter. And this we saw, I mean, you look throughout history, you see this over and over again. One of the, one of the things that's never talked about in modern history books about the Roman Empire is that one of, the, one of the, the major issues and one of the major problems that led to the fall of Rome was the destruction of the Roman nuclear family. And and debauchery and all sorts of other things and you know Nero and and all the garbage that went on with that, so it, it brings me back to then the question and and I should probably bring in, um, Hig. Hig is here. Hig is here. Hig had uh, to deal with the unexpected emergency. So oh did you? Phone system crashed. Uh, couldn't, they couldn't send or receive calls. Here? No. Oh, no, at, at, a, a, at a client. In, interestingly enough, ours they tried to call us. And apparently our system, it's still to this moment crash. I'm actually working on it right now. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. That's always a fun way to yeah, start your morning. Exactly. <laughs> so um, so the question that I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of ask throughout the show today, Noah, is do we need a new, new world? That's do, a dangerous thing to ask. Well, it is. Because as I look around and I mentioned what was happening in Paris over the weekend and the riots over the last couple of weeks in, in Paris and, and, and some of that and some of the... The protests against mass migration in in Sweden and some of the other parts around the world, um, what's happening just in general around the world? Do we need another American Revolution? Do we need a new new world to to re re reorient us to what made the the founding principles or or the founding principles that made the United States, States such a great nation, or is it is it even possible? Is you know one of the other questions. So, so I would say that um, the idea of another civil war or another revolutionary war is probably one of the worst things that could ever happen in this country. Okay. Even if the outcome is desirable, I think that, or even if there are desirable desirable outcomes from it, I think that it's probably one of the worst things that could ever happen. So I, I'm always going to advocate that that never happens right right it, it, because we you know it's funny you see not from the right by the way from the left they come out and say well we need to uh you're there, there's going to be blood in the streets we're going right. to there's going to be violence well, from who we have all the guns i mean right. who are you kidding right but uh at the at the same time like i i would i i hope that never happens because right. it would be just absolutely just devastating to this country oh yeah Absolutely. So, and that's, I guess, and, and, and I don't know, and, I, and I've said this before, that I would never advocate for a, for a civil war. And I think if today, if there were another civil war here in the U.S., I don't think it would be the bloody civil war that we, we saw in the 1860s. I, I think it would look much different than that. Um, but the, the idea, maybe what we need is the ideology of a new revolution without the actual, you know, physical confrontation. And and that, and that's kind of the question question I was asking because the the so I went and looked this up right we always talk about we need to return to the founding principles right the founding principles of the United States we need to return to that what are they does anybody really know I'm not sure people actually understand what the founding principles were uh, they you know they they think liberty freedom you know bald eagles and 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 flag waving right they don't really actually understand what those founding principles were so I started kind of looking into this and what what they are. And I found it. Actually, I'll put a link to this article. I don't know who this is. They could be a bunch of radical lefties. I don't, I don't know. But the 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 um, I, I think it lays out 
what the founding principles are fairly well. And, and of course, they're, it's a maybe overly simplified approach because they only list five. And, and I suppose you could probably argue that there were many, many more. But I think they all kind of fall in, in one way or another under these five uh, founding, founding principles. The first one being rights come from God, not from government. And we see this, of course, in the Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And, of course, we know that to be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all that, right? So these rights, the, the founding fathers didn't believe that it was the government who allowed us these rights. It wasn't the government who bestowed these rights upon us. They believed that by nature of our humanity, these rights were ours and unable to be either taken away or given away. Like we don't have the right to give these rights up. As humans, we can't give up the right to life, liberty, and or the pursuit of happiness. Those are, those are endowed in us by virtue of our humanity. Now, one can argue, well, if you don't want to pursue happiness because you're just, you know, you're an emo, you know, nerd in middle school, whatever, it's fine. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to pursue happiness, but it is, it is inherent in us to want to pursue happiness. If we don't want to pursue happiness, if we don't want to protect our life, if we don't want to protect our liberty, that there is there's something gone haywire in our nature. We've, you know, call it mental illness, you know, whatever it is, but it is in the nature of humanity that we strive for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and... They the other interesting thing is that the founding fathers, the founders of this government or this nation, didn't believe. Not only did they not believe that the government bestowed rights, but they actually believed that the governments were the ones who abridged our rights, who cut them short, who who limited our rights, and that they always saw as a problem. Um, in fact, to be honest, the founding fathers didn't even really believe that the government's, because I've said this before, and, I, and, and as I've understood this a little bit better and as I've, I've done a little bit more study on it, I used to say that it was the government's job to protect our rights, right? That God, God gave us these rights, that we, we were endowed with these rights by our creator, and that it was the government's jobs to secure those rights, to protect those rights. And I'm, I'm, I don't believe that that's true anymore. I think in reality, it is our job. As citizens of the nation, as citizens of the nation, to protect our own rights, if necessary, to protect our rights from the government. Like that's why we have the Second Amendment. Well, and that's also why it calls for, uh, essentially, the country to be reborn right. every so many years. Right. Yeah. Well. That, yeah. Exactly. That was one of the things that that uh, um, Thomas Jefferson, the old quote, you know, the the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. So it makes you wonder. If, if we're at that position yet, if, that, if we're at that place yet, I don't know. The second um, founding principle, all political power emanates from the people. Now, in this article, it mentions it, and, and I've talked about this before. The founders of this nation, of course, heavily, heavily influenced by John Locke. And he was a guy who advocated for government as more of a societal contract. Like, you and I agree that it's a bad idea to steal, so let's write a law that says it's not acceptable to to engage in thievery. Um, and so he actually used the term, and you see this in the in the in the um, in the Declaration of Independence as well. He used the the phrase "the will of the governed," right? Um, which means essentially, we're in charge. We the people. In the very first line of the Declaration of Independence: "We the people." is th this is the basis for the new government, it, which comes back to, again, the idea that it is our job as citizens to protect our own rights. It's not the government's job. It's, the government is essentially, like I said, just a societal contract, a, a social contract. We all agree that these are bad things, 
So let's write a law that says this is a bad thing. We all agree that this other thing is a good thing. So let's write a law that says this is a good thing. Um, so all power emanates from people. And again, you can read this article and I'll link to it in the show notes and you'll, you'll be able to see it a little bit more in depth. Um, limited representative Republic. The, the, we all know, and it didn't matter whether you were the, the more classical liberal like John Adams or, or Alexander Hamilton, or if you were the more, you know, staunch conservative like a, a Thomas Jefferson or, or someone like that, that the, they all believed in limited government. The, you know, of course, Jefferson more so than Adams, but, you know, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists and all of that thing. But the idea that is that they all believe that the less government, the better. That for the most part, we can all kind of take care of ourselves and the government just needs to be kind of this overarching... Well, it's really, it's the protector of the rights. It's umbrella. to make sure that one person doesn't step on the rights of somebody else. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But again, that, that comes back to, it. it's not really the government's responsibility to make sure you don't step on my rights. It's, it's my responsibility to not allow you to step on my rights. And, and, and if you and I agree that that's acceptable, then we write a law that the government says you can't do this. And so then I can use that against you when you try to step on my rights. I can say, no, you can't do that because we agreed. And here's the law that says we agreed. But here's the writing that you know, says that's we what agreed. I mean, though, isn't that the, isn't that, but then the government becomes the enforcer of that law. That's, there you go. That's maybe a better way to say it is, is the enforcer. Because this is one of the things that, that I'm, and I'm not sure I still have been able to wrap my head around this, is that the government is not, it's not the government's job to protect the rights of the citizenry. Like that, I'm, I'm not, like I said, this is a fairly new concept for me that I'm, I'm trying to kind of wrap my brain around. I think it's right. I'm not quite there yet, and I'll have to continue to study this. And I may have to come back in a future episode and say, you know what, I was wrong. It is the government's right to, or, or the government's job to protect our rights, and here's why. But as I, as I start to kind of get into this a little bit more, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced that, that it is the government's job. It's our because the government doesn't do anything without our consent, right? This is the will of the governed concept from John Locke. Um, the written constitution is one of the one of the founding principles of the of the of this nation, and 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 I think that's an important thing to point out because we have this, and I've said this many times before on my terrestrial show and and in other places that that the the idea of the the written constitution we are not in this anytime someone goes it's a, it's a democracy we live in a democracy no we don't nobody wants a democracy a democracy is a lynch mob and i think you've said it before a democracy is is two pedophiles and a mom deciding on the, the age of consent, consent right? right yeah and i think it was uh, david grossman i think it was david grossman i'll have to look it up again but he talked about the you know a democracy is Two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Right, exactly. You know, and so, so the the idea that's a democracy, right? The, the the we live in a republic, and a republic is based on the rule of law. The Constitution says these sorts of things are unacceptable, and these other things are acceptable. Mm. And and it doesn't matter if ninety nine people out of a hundred want to murder the one hundredth guy. The law says murder is illegal, and you can't murder it. You know, it's interesting too because. Where do you find all of these people that come to defend democracy? It's all the people that supposedly care about minorities. Right. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. if you care about minorities, then you wouldn't have a democracy because the person that gets squashed is the minority. Right. Yeah. Well, and and and, and to add to that, if there's 99 people out of 100 that want to murder the 100th guy, not only is the 100th guy protected because murder is illegal, the, the Constitution doesn't allow, at least the United States Constitution, does not allow the 99 to write a law that says it's acceptable to murder because we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness laid out in the Declaration of Independence. And then the Constitution goes on to lay out a bunch of things, how that how that plays out in practicality. So even if they wanted to write a law to murder the nine, the one hundredth guy, they can't even do that because the constitution says, no, that's not acceptable. So, um, and then the last one, private property rights. Founders also very heavily influenced by Adam Smith, uh, economist and, and thinker, philosopher, whatever. Um, 
property rights. And I've said this before. This is one of the, the six canons of conservative thought, right? That liberty and, and property rights cannot be disconnected. If I don't have the right to my own property, I don't have the right to anything. And and actually, the the, the story goes that when, when Thomas Jefferson was drafting Declaration of Independence, when he what he had originally written was that among these, speaking of the rights, are life, liberty, and property rights. He did not say the pursuit of happiness, but they didn't think that you know the 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 uh, they didn't think that would sound as good in their in their noble quest to um, dissolve the bands that tied them to the king. So they said, well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But originally, Thomas Jefferson's desire, Thomas Jefferson's um, discussion was life, liberty, and the pursuit of property rights. Uh, James Madison said, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may, equally be, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. And what he meant essentially is that if a person is owed nothing other than anything, he's owed his, his rights, his, his God-given rights, um, which were his most valuable property of all, is what the article says. So anyway, I, and again, I'll have a link to this, this, uh, this, uh, this article. It's from a website called What Would the Founders Think? I don't know who they are. This is the first time I've ever seen them. I may have to dig into them a little bit better, but I think it's a pretty well laid out article. Now, this to come back to where we started with all of this, with the discussion of government policy causing problems and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to, so the black family structure, there's an article I'll, I'll link to the show notes as what linked to in the show notes as well, written by Walter Williams. I've had the, the, the great pleasure of having uh, interviewed Walter Williams. Dude is a, fantastic guy, super, super nice guy. And a, just an absolute genius. This guy is one of the smartest people. And I asked him one of the questions I asked him because oftentimes I'm a white guy, right? I grew up, I'm whiter than sour cream. I grew up in North Dakota where, where, you know, like 90 some percent of the population is white. You know, we just, I lived in Colorado Springs for like eight years. So I saw some diversity of race and, and ethnicities and things like that. But for the most part, I've not had a lot of interactions in my lifetime with, with black people. And so I asked Walter Williams, one of the questions I asked him was, I, I said, how does a, you know, how does a guy like me, a white guy like me who just doesn't, you know, has not had a lot of experience in, in these areas, has not had a lot of discussion in these areas. Um, how do I, you know, what do I need to know as it relates to interacting with black people? And his answer was genius. He said, don't be a damn fool. That was, that was, that was exactly what he said. Just don't be a fool. And, and he actually, if you go to Walter Williams website, you can download it. It's a certificate of absolution. Um, I can't remember. I'll have to see, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I can't remember exactly how it's worded, but he essentially says as a black man, I give you the white man, absolution from all the sins of your fathers and slavery and all this kind of stuff. And you're no longer guilty of any of this. It's actually pretty, pretty good. But anyway, he talks about the destruction of the black family in 1966. He said, um, and I think I had this percentage wrong earlier in the show. So this is the correction in 1960, only 22% of black children were raised in single parent families. 50 years later, more than 70% of black children were raised in single parent families. So he says, here's, and this is Walter Williams speaking. He said, here's my question. Was the increase in single parent black families after 1960 a legacy of slavery? Or might it be a legacy of the welfare state ushered in by the war on poverty? And, and this is one of the things that I've talked about before is that, that we, we no longer, especially as, as black families, they, they no longer, black fathers don't have to be dad anymore. The government has come in, has stepped in and become dad for them. The government has come in and said, oh, don't worry. If, if dad isn't in the picture, we'll give mom a bunch of food stamps. We'll give mom a bunch of, of, of Medicaid and Medicare and other welfare benefits. So dad doesn't have to be in the picture. They have, and, and again, intentionally or unintentionally, that's been the result. 
And so I've argued before that the black father no longer is necessary. And, and that's a sad, tragic commentary on society. I mean, think about it. it for, for your wife, if, if, if the government were to come in and provide food, health care, housing, heat assistance, I mean, you name it, provided all of those things, what would your wife need you for? And, you know, it's interesting because when you were saying that, I was going to say it's not specific to race. Right. No. You know, because it's it's really it's it's any it's the black family that's been hit the hardest by it. But it's not necessarily tied yeah, the, to race. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It Because the, the government steps in and says, no, we'll we'll provide for the family. And it gives people an excuse. Yeah. Now, real men are going to step up anyway. It doesn't right, matter. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because we don't need the government or law or society to tell us what to do. We're, we're capable of figuring that out and we're going to provide for our family. But. Yeah, if you're if you weren't serious to begin with, and all of a sudden you hooked up with some girl and now she's pregnant, and you said, "Well, you know what? They're going to be fine. It's like the baby's going to starve because government." Yeah, government's going to step government, in. Government take care of it, and then you wind up with you know that you know woman on YouTube. Who's going to feed my kids? I have eleven kids. Who's going to feed? The, have you seen that? Yeah. Yep. You know. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Who's going? You. Right. Yeah. You're going to feed your kids. Or, or or we'll take the kids and we'll put them with somebody who will since right. you're a bad mother. And I know right. that's a terrible thing to say. Or but whatever, it's true. But it's true. It's, yeah, absolutely, it's true. absolutely true. So he, he goes on to say, he, he goes on to say, according, and this is where I got the number earlier, the 11%. I, so uh, he said, according to the 1938 Encyclopedia of Social Sciences, that year 11% of black children were born to unwed mothers. Today, about 75% of black children are born to unwed mothers. And, and so there's absolutely, in, in my opinion, a correlation between the more the government steps in, the less the father is necessary, and the easier it is for the father to not stick around. Now, I want to come back to discussion of race, lest I be called a racist for su- suggesting such things. There's, a, there's a, a story that I found written by quote unquote Michael Smith and Michael Smith is a is a is a false name and I think he actually addresses this in the article and and I don't normally do this but I want to read most of this article in its entirety because it's I, I can't say it any better than than he did Michael Smith is a pseudonym um, and it was written it's called it's titled Confessions of a Public Defender and I'll again have a link to this in the in the show notes Excuse me. He says, I'm a public defender in a large southern metropolitan area. Fewer than 10% of the people in the area I serve are black, but over 90% of my clients are black. The remaining 10% are mainly Hispanics, but there are a few whites. I have no explanation for why this is, but crime has racial patterns. Hispanics usually commit two kinds of crime, sexual assault on children and driving under the influence. Blacks commit many violent crimes, but very few sex crimes. The handful of whites I see commit all kinds of crimes. In my many years as public defender, I've represented only three Asians and one was half black. As a young lawyer, I believe the official story that blacks are law-abiding, intelligent, family-oriented people, but are so poor they must turn to crime to survive. Actual black behavior was a shock to me. The media invariably sugarcoat black behavior. Even the news reports of the very crimes I dealt with in the court were slanted. Television news intentionally leaves out unflattering facts about the accused and sometimes omits names that are obviously black. All this rocked my liberal, tolerant beliefs, but it took me years to set aside my illusions and accept the reality of what I see every day. I have now served thousands of blacks and their families, protecting their rights and defending them in court, and what follows are my observations. Although blacks are only a small percentage of our community, the courthouse is filled with them. The halls and gallery benches are overflowing with black defendants, families, and crime victims. Most whites with business in court arrive quietly, dress appropriately, and keep their heads down. They get in and get out as fast as they can. For blacks, the courthouse is like a carnival. They all seem to know each other, hundreds and hundreds each day, gossiping, laughing, loudly waving, and crowding the halls. When I am appointed to represent a client, I introduce myself and explain that I am his lawyer. I explain the court process and my role in it, and I ask the client some basic questions about himself. At this stage, I can tell with great accuracy how people will react. Hispanics are extremely polite and deferential. An Hispanic will never call me by my first name and will answer my questions directly 
and with appropriate respect for my position. Whites are similarly respectful. A black man will never call me Mr. Smith. I am always Mike. It is not unusual for a 19-year-old black to refer to me as dog. A black may mumble complaints about everything I say, roll his eyes when I politely interrupt, so I can, so I can continue with my explanation. Also, everything I say to blacks must be at about the third grade level. If I slip and use adult language, they get angry because they think I am flaunting my superiority. At the early stages of a case, I explain the process to my clients. I often do not yet have the information in the police reports. Blacks are unable to understand that I, don't not, that I do not yet have the answers to all of their questions, but I, that I will by a certain date. They live in the here and now and are unable to wait for anything, usually, by the second meeting with the client, I have most of the police reports and understand their case. Unlike people of other races, blacks never see their lawyer as someone who is there to help them. I am part of the system against which they are waging war. They often explode with anger at me and are quick to blame me for anything that goes wrong in their case. Black men often try to trip me up, challenging my knowledge of the law or the facts of the case. I appreciate sincere questions about the elements of the, off, of the offense or the sentencing guidelines, but blacks ask questions to test me. Unfortunately, they're almost always wrong in their reading or understanding of the law, and this can cause friction. I may repeatedly explain the law and provide copies of the statute showing, for example, why my client must serve six years if convicted, but he continues to believe that a handwritten note from his quote-unquote celly is, is controlling law. Now, the article goes on to talk a little bit more about this, but I, I bring this up because he, I'm gonna and I'm gonna skip a, a section because he talks about the risks of going to trial and and the dangers of of choosing a jury trial and versus a, a, a oh what's he call it a jury trial or a, a bench trial is the other word, um, but then he gets on to the part where we we're talking about earlier no fathers. He says, as a, as a public defender, I've learned many things about people. One is that defendants do not have fathers. If a black even knows the name of his father, he knows of him only as a shadowy person with whom he has absolutely no ties. When a client is sentenced, I often beg for mercy on the grounds that the defendant did not have a father and never had a chance in life. I have often tracked down the man's father in jail and have brought him to the sentencing hearing to testify that he never knew his son and never lifted a finger to help him. Often, this is the first time my client has ever met his father. These meetings are utterly unemotional. Many black defendants don't even have mothers who care about them. Many are raised by grandmothers after the states removed the children from an incompetent teenaged mother. Many of these mothers and grandmothers are mentally unstable and are completely disconnected from the realities they face in court and in life. A 47-year-old grandmother will deny that her grandson has gang ties even though his forehead is tattooed with a gang sign or slogan. When I point this out in as kind and understanding a way as I can, she screams at me. When black women start screaming, they invoke the name of Jesus and shout swear words in the same breath. Black women have great faith in God, but they have a twisted understanding of his role. They do not pray for strength or courage. They pray for results satisfaction of immediate needs. One of my clients was, was a black woman who prayed in a circle with her accomplices for God's protection from the police before they would set out to commit a robbery. The mothers and grandfathers or grandmothers pray in the hallways not for justice but for acquittal. When I explain the evidence that their beloved child murdered the shopkeeper is overwhelming and that he should accept the very fair plea bargain I have negotiated, they will tell me he is going to trial and will, quote, ride with the Lord. They tell me to speak. They tell me they speak to God every day, and He assures them that the young man will be acquitted. The mothers and grandmothers do not seem to be able to imagine and understand the consequences of going to trial and losing. Some, and this is the shocking reality, it took me a long time to grasp, don't really care what happens to the client, but want to make it look as if they care. This means pounding their chests in righteous indignation, insisting on going to trial despite terrible evidence. They refuse to listen to the one person, me, who has the knowledge to make the best recommendation. These people seem to lose interest in the case and stop showing, about, showing up after about the third or fourth court date. It is then easier for me to convince the client to act in his own best interests and accept a plea ag agreement. Part of the problem is that the underclass black women begin having babies at about the age 15. They continue to have babies with, black, with different black men until they have had five or six. 
These women do not go to school. They do not work. They are not ashamed to live on public money. They plan their entire lives around the expectation that they always get free money and will ne- and never have to work. I do not see this among whites, Hispanics, or any other people. The black men who become my clients also do not work. They get a Social Security disability payments for a mental defect or a vague, invisible physical ailment. They do not pay for anything, not for housing. Grandma lives on welfare and he lives with her. Not for food, grandma and the baby mama share with him and not for child support. When I learn that my 19-year-old defendant does not work or go to school, I ask, what do you do all day? He smiles. He says, you know, just chill. The men live in a culture with no expectations, no demands, and no shame. And that last sentence is the key. They live in a culture with no expectations. They, they're not expected to provide for their families because the government does it for them. They're not expected to take care of their children or to raise their children because someone else will take care of them. And again, as you said, this isn't necessarily about race. This is because this is true of, of right. any culture. You remove motivation right. from a man to, to, to succeed and, and his level of success will fall dramatically. And, and, and I could replace that. Everything you just said in the last 15 minutes, I could replace blacks with people of lower socioeconomic status and it right. would still be true. Exactly. It doesn't really, you know, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It Now, there might be a disproportionate amount of people of a given race that fall into that lower socioeconomic right. status, but it's that whole cause does not equal causation thing. It's, you know, it's a function of their low socioeconomic status it has nothing to do with the actual color of their skin. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not like, oh, you're black, so then you're, you're you mentally inferior right, or whatever. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you have a low socioeconomic status. And so you, you've not, you've not had education. And so when somebody starts to use larger words, then it becomes, yeah. you know, insulting. Interestingly enough, you and I just, uh, like a week ago yesterday, we just went to a movie together. Yeah, and and it really exemplified a lot of this quote. So the movie we're talking, I'm talking it's the about the Green Book. Is, it's called the Green Book. It's a fantastic movie. True story about a gentleman who a a black musician back in the '60s who needed to travel to do his concert tour and hired a essentially a, an Italian mafia guy to accompany him around to drive him around. You know, and the and, and the guy he he wasn't overtly racist in that. You know, like he just absolutely hated people. He was more right. like the he was more he was he was more racist along the lines of like, do we really have to let him in the house? Kind of a yeah, you know, th- that, the that stereotypical kind of not like sixties yeah, kind not of, like yeah. let's drag him out and lynch him. So it was right. you know for the, for that standard, it, by the standard of the sixties, he was you know was a pretty nice guy. Um, by today's standards, you know, right, not so much. But so the the quote that sticks out in the movie though is is because this guy is he's African American but very well educated, right. And so, and he says in the movie, he says, well, I'm not black enough to fit in with, with, with black people and I'm not white enough to fit in with white people. So where do I fit in? Yeah. Because he's too smart to, to be around the, you know, the, the stereotypical black person. And that was frustrating to him. And he wasn't, obviously the complexion of his skin, uh, meant that he wasn't welcome around the higher classed higher socioeconomic class white people and so he he felt very out of place and it it does a really good job of illustrating that it has absolutely nothing to do with skin color and yeah. everything to do with culture and when you perpetuate that culture then you continue the problems yeah. of poor culture or you or you amplify the effects of positive culture one <clears throat> one text messenger says uh, i just got a text message from a friend that's listening in he said that the um he said that he disagrees that it's it's socioeconomic status but <clears throat> that it's a condition of the heart Mm. And and I I actually have a tendency to to agree with him. Okay, but at the same time, I I think it's I I just explain that a little bit. A, 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 a it's it's not a socioeconomic status. It is a condition of the heart. So the idea is, it doesn't matter what social class you grew up in. It matters your attitude towards it. Partly, and and I think the other thing he's saying is that the part of the low socioeconomic status is due to the heart condition. It's due to the to the to the attitude. Like because you mm. look you look at you look at people like um, uh, what was her name Condoleezza Rice mm-hmm. Secretary of State under President W. Um, she was I think she was the the prevost of Stanford University mm-hmm. at like twenty six years old mm-hmm. like she was the youngest prevost in in history black woman who grew up in the South and in fact I think one of her kids 
or one of her kids, one of her uh, childhood friends was a victim of the the one church bombing in Birmingham, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I might be wrong on that, but I'd have to go back and look that up. But sure. yeah, so, but she come out of the, you know, the very racist South of the 60s that we were just talking about with this movie, The Green Book, mm-hmm. and, you know, rose to incredible prominence, was a, a, a wildly talented uh, concert pianist, became the Secretary of State, you know, the, the President of the United States right-hand man, essentially, as it relates to any, no pun intended, right-hand man, she was a she. Um, that, that, uh, you know, as it relates to foreign policy and all that kind of stuff, Colin Powell, you know, rose to ex- significant prominence within the military, became the, the, uh, secretary of defense and, and as a black man who grew up with the same, you know, a lot of the same obstacles that many black people do, but because their quote unquote attitude or, or, or the condition of their heart was such that they were taught to succeed or to overcome the obstacles and, and fight for success. And therefore they did. So yeah, I, I, I think I actually agree with him that there is a, there's certainly a, yeah, I, a heart condition issue there. Yep. Yep. I be, yeah. And, and what you, what you find is that uh, in almost any circumstance, in almost any place in the country, the, there, there, no matter what the conditions are, there is a small group of people that are working super hard and it, it doesn't seem to really matter where they came from. So I, I guess I can also, I can also see that point of view. I just wanted, I just, as you were reading it, I just, it just, it seems that it's worth pointing out that although we're using the term black people or using the right. term, you know, African-American, it really has nothing to do with them or the color of their skin. Yeah. That's- it's, they're not poor because their skin is black. They're right. they're Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so, okay. So that, and that's the seriously, go, there's more to that article. He, he has, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. You need to read it. If, if, uh, if you've ever wondered about, cause he talks about crime statistics and things like that. Um, he talks about, you know, 40% of the crimes, um, committed he, in his particular area. I'm assuming he says a large Southern metropolitan. I'm assuming Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, you know, somewhere like that. Um, but he says, he says from time to time, the media report that although blacks are 12% of the population, they are 40% of the prison population. This is supposed to be an outrage that results from unfair treatment in the criminal justice system. What the media only hint at is another staggering re- reality, recidivism. Black men arrested and convicted over and over, and he goes on. So there's more in that article as well. But, yeah, check that out. It's a great, it's a great article. I was going to talk a little bit about Paris, um, but I think we're, I think we're going to probably run out of time um, on this whole, um, just this hour in general. Um, the, there's been, just I'll, I'll try to do the quick rundown. There's been a bunch of rioting in Paris over it started originally, I think, as a as a um, uh, as a protest to gas taxes, a, a massive increase in, in gas taxes. Um, there have been at one point, the uh, the protesters actually stole an assault rifle from the cops. They attacked police, burned some cars like 130 some people have been injured. Um, the worst riots in in 50 years, apparently. Um, and. I just want to point this out here real quick. Um, oh, text message puts, points this out too. Why do rich black football players still do or commit bad and violent crimes? It, and and I think mm. his I think his answer would be it's the condition of the heart, right? Sure. You yeah. Know, they, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not because they're black; it's because they're just not very good people. Right, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, because because who was the who was the uh, who was the one uh, white boxer? Tommy Morrison mm-hmm. was slated probably to be the greatest. He was actually in one of the Rocky movies too. Slated to be probably one of the greatest boxers of all time. Claimed that he hit harder than Tyson. His his next major fight was supposed to be Mike Tyson back in the nineties, and he ended up dying of AIDS because he was a crazy womanizing, you know alcoholic drug addict and whatever and you know it's just as white as me so yeah it it's not it's not about the color skin of the color, skin yeah. it's the, I, I think the the text message is absolutely right it's the issue of the heart so mm-hmm. um so anyway back to um france honestly i i i have a hard time sympathizing with the people of france because they voted for this guy 
Like oh, this is this is this take, is yeah. Macron. This the guys are radical socialists. Yeah. Like this is what you asked for. And now that it's affecting your pocketbook, all of a sudden you're upset about it. You know, I mean, I, I, they're calling for him to resign. They had an opportunity to, there was a, there was a French Trump essentially mm-hmm. that was running against Macron. Mm-hmm. It was a woman. I believe it was Le Pen, uh, Marie Le Pen. I can't remember her real, her name, but, um, she was billed as essentially as the, the French version of Donald Trump, the female French version of, of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to look her up here real quick, find her name. Um, Marine Le Pen, I think is her name. Mar- Marion Anne, oh, where'd she go? Marion Anne Perrin Marine Le Pen. Holy cow, that's a lot of names. Um, she was a uh, member of the party. Was she a member of? She is um, the National Rally Party. In France, I don't know mm-hmm. much about them, but apparently, she, it's, from what I understand, she was essentially a um, she was essentially a, a, a female French version of Trump, and nobody liked her because she wasn't actually Trump, and sure. so they vote for this Macron or this Macron or however you pronounce his name, and he he was a straight he was a Bernie Sanders, he was he was a, a I think he's actually a member of the Socialist Party, the whatever. Um, kind of surprised that that's taking off in Europe. What socialism? Well, actual socialism. You know, just oh, given yeah. what happened in the. Well, yeah, the, you know, yeah, socialism. Um, let's, Emmanuel Macron, um, is president of France. See, what's he is his party affiliation? Um, and La République en Marche is a. I don't, I don't. I don't speak French, so that's what that you makes get. two of us. That was that was a little bit of. Uh, Hebrew and and ger- <laughs> German mixed in there with my French accent. Um, it's some so, sometimes called En Markel um, or Marquet. I think it's it's a, got an exclamation point. The actually name of their party has an exclamation point in it. Okay. Well, so, you know we got all sorts of umlauts and right. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. Umlauts. Yeah. yeah. And then I don't know what the what's the tilde is it tilde, called? A, yeah. Is it actually called a tilde though? When it's that's what it is on the keyboards. That's what it's called when it's part of a. I think so. Is yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, it is a centrist liberal and social liberal part, political party in France founded in April 2016 by Mr. Macron himself. So he's a, he's an independent. He's just like Bernie Sanders. He's an independent democratic socialist, whatever you want to call him. So this is what they get. I, I mean, I honestly, I, I have a hard time feeling too bad for the people in Paris. So we're not going to have really a whole lot of time to dig into this. But this is part of my discussion of do we need to come back to a point where we need a new, new world mm-hmm. for people like this Marine Le Pen, mm-hmm. people like you and I, people like, you know, Charlie Brown in, in Australia that, that uh, spends a lot of time in our telegram room mm-hmm. to go, hey, I, I don't want to be a part of Australia. I'm a little worried about what's happening in Europe. I'm not sure what's going to happen in the U.S. if they continue down the path they're on. Do we need a new, new world? Do we do we need do we need the the paradise that that uh, Ayn Rand talked about in Atlas Shrugged? Yeah, I don't. I just don't know how we get there. I don't either. I, I, yeah, so. I, I'm not sure. I have an answer for that either. But that's one of the discussions uh, that I think is is going to have to take place over the next couple of decades. Is where do we where do we go? Because there's, there's, we're at a point in the United States where there's 50% of the people that don't, that they're happy with socialism. They're happy with, with watching the United States devolve into the next Venezuela. But then there are people in the United States, half of us that are going, no, I want to return to, you know, 1776 America, mm-hmm. or at least ideologically, because I, I don't want to, honestly, I don't want to return to a days of churning my own butter and digging a well. I mean, well, but there are days, dude, I tell you what, <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. Yeah, yeah, I, no, I, I know. Really? I mean, you know, there, there are days I sit, I sit there and I, I, th- I think of like, I go camping with, yep. with my family and there, there's times, you know, I'll set up my solar panels and it will charge the batteries in the RV. And, uh, I use my laptop and, and, uh, I don't have any internet. I don't have any phone service. I don't have any water service. I take care of my own sewage. Like all of that stuff I'm doing. And I look down and I'm like, 
So wait a minute. It's what not is so it? bad. Yeah, exactly. I, I looked down. I'm like, so wait a minute. Why is it that I pay gobs and gobs and gobs of tax dollars? What exactly is that money going for again? And why is it so absolutely necessary for the, you know, because if you talk to anybody, you talk to the average Joe on the street, they're like, well, of course we have to have city taxes because we, oh, I, how are we going to pay for plumbing? How are we going to pay for electricity? How are we going to, you know, you know what I mean? And then right. you start actually looking at it and you're like, well, actually technology's really gotten to the point that I can Amazon prime all that stuff and it just kind of shows up. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, I can, I can, I can. Really, you could in your own backyard, you could create a, a septic system mm-hmm. to fairly inexpensively, right. actually. Well, or uh, I mean, not to get too survivalist, but uh, uh, composting toilets. Oh yeah. So you know, essentially, without getting into the nitty gritty, it separates the two right. into various, th- and and it just it the the smell it just smells like dirt because right. that's essentially what it is. Uh, and, and so I don't know, there's just, there's, there's technology has gotten to the point where we can deal with a lot of the stuff that we don't need massive infrastructure to deal with, but we're told that. So we just, it just perpetuates the cycle. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Noah, I guess with that, we will, uh, we'll call it a day and, uh, we'll, we'll, so, oh, so I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast while you were doing, dealing with the emergency, uh, phone system, I got the artwork from from yes. from from Cartoon Katie and it's fantastic. She's got to, she said she's got it to do is. a little bit of of cleanup and and get it all ready to go and she'll have the 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 files ready for digitization and being able to to create some some Schmidt head gear so we'll be having that soon. Hopefully we'll put it up. I don't know. I don't have like a we don't have like an online store or anything like that. Um Hig could set one up for you. But we could set not one saying. up. I know you can do it even through Facebook. So yeah, you could do it. It's not that hard. So we'll have that and and maybe we'll we'll create some giveaways if people sign up on Patreon. Um, you know, if you if you sign up on Patreon to be a seventeen seventy six supporter, um, we'll get you a free T shirt or hat or something like that. I, I, I don't know. We I, I don't know how any of this works. I'm new to this whole thing. Somebody needs to get me hooked up with somebody. Oh, did you hear about this? Blaze TV or Blaze Media? Um, Glenn Beck's organization and CRTV have have merged. Okay, so what's the backstory? Who bought who? I don't know. That's I got to dig into. Somebody just sent me a link to it this morning. So a, actually, a listener, a friend of mine. I, I, we can't talk about this on air. I have to talk to you about it off yeah. air. But that that may have some implications for us, and not in a good way. Really? Yeah. Uh-oh. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Now you're freaking me out. Uh, that's all right. All right. So this is the final episode of the Schmidt Show. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, we'll have to talk about that. And uh, like I said, I just heard about that this morning. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for for listening and spending time with us and uh, hanging out with us here on the Schmidt Show. If I keep this volume low enough, nobody... I'm, I'm fixing that today. I'm finding a new ultra music. I'm going to yeah, do it right we, now. Yeah. I'm doing it right now. All right. Hey, let's It'll just be- rip it then. All right, we're out of here. We'll see you guys next week. I'm Brad Schmidt. This is The Schmidt Show. That was The Hig. See you next week.